Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with my dear friend Lior Zach Shmueli, who is a lecturer in Hasidism and Kabbalah in the Jewish Philosophy Department of bar and she's here to speak about Parshat Truma. Lior, it's great to be sitting here with you. Well, thank you for your invitation. Um, so before we get into the details of the commentary that you wanted to uh, bring us today, just how did you get into this field? Where, where did this come from? So I think there are a few stages of uh, my uh, connection to Kabbalah and Hasidism. From a very young age, I think I had a very strong and profound connection to Torah and the mystical side of it. I remember myself in a very young age seeking for questions and answers and not really finding them in the philosophical answers that Jewish philosophers, very smart and um, intellectual, gave to to their people. One of the problems were for me that the rational side of the way that they approach questions left me with more and more questions. And I found that uh, general philosophy gives me better rational answers than some of the apologetics I found in Jewish philosophy. Once I met some of the mystical, Kabbalistic approaches, and maybe mediated by Rav Shagar, I just wrote an article about, he presented Kabbalah and the mystical tradition as a means to find meaning and a deep practice of Torah and commandments without the burden of rationality. How old were you when you discovered Rav Shagar's works? I was um, 17 years old. Okay. It was after approaching many of my teachers and rabbis in the Ulpen I, I learned in. I, was, I studied in Ulpen Atamana. They always were very, very accepting of my uh, questions and my search, always very respectful. But in one stage, they felt they can't answer or help me anymore. And I was already in my 12th grade, and I found this book, and it was very important for my development. And then from there to studying it in university, that was a... So when I started university, I came to the Jewish philosophy department in Barilan University, and what I met there is the richness of Jewish traditions and philosophy, and I met the various approaches to Jewish... uh, tradition and beliefs, and I found that this richness and variety is something I didn't learn when I was in my earlier years, that when I was presented with one belief and one way of understanding our tradition. And I met there a few of the professors that became very influential in my development as a researcher and scholar. The most important one was Professor Daniel Abrams, that was my advisor of my uh, master's and PhD, and another professor that was more inspirational, but he also had maybe an invitation to Kabbalah studies was Professor Avi Al-Kayam, and through them I was first introduced with the Kabbalah, which was very inviting for me, 
And I will just explain a little more. What was so inviting for me was that the symbolic way that Kabbalists talk and the figurative way um, that they explain ideas, they approach imagination, they approach emotion, and they give us ways to transpass the rational burdens of our uh, awareness and cognition into a world of very poetic ways to approach God and divine. And I found this figurative, sometimes very physical, erotic language that we will speak soon about, very compelling and inspirational for a life that seeks a mystical and more profound experience without maybe matching it with the philosophical contemporary concerns. Okay, so I just want to I want to add two notes. One is to explain who Arav Shagar is for anyone in the audience who doesn't know who he is, and that's Arav um, Shimon uh, Gershon Rosenberg, who was associated with a number of institutions. One of them mainly is uh, was Siach, uh, actually. Uh, yeshiva that is here, I'm saying here because we're recording this in my house in Efrat, uh, right across the way. Uh, he really sort of ushered in a very interesting time. Uh, he wrote a lot in response to uh, postmodernism, but to the real philosophies of postmodernism, not to just looking around and speaking about the culture in, in quotes. Uh, and he also, as Lior explained, really involved all different, he's one of the first who really incorporated a Hasidic study into into mainstay yeshiva study, and his his writings have impacted a, a whole generation, if not at this point, two generations of people. There's a number of them that are actually also translated into English. I will um, put some of them in the show notes. But I just, as I was thinking, I was thinking as you were explaining a little bit about what draws you to the world of Kabbalah, because if I could be self conscious for a moment that I also experience you as a person whose cognition is very very central to her to her way of interacting. And so it's so interesting for me to hear as your friend that the cognition you felt was a barrier for you in a lot of ways, certainly when you were younger. But when you go into the world of academia, so you're taking the emotional, um, rich world of imagery, right, that you're explaining that exists in the world of Kabbalah and perhaps also Hasidut, although I'm sure there's a difference between those two. But you're using, you're studying them with the, very cognitive tools of the, of, of the academy. So I'm also just curious where that takes you, right? Do you sometimes feel like, ugh, I went into this for the soul, but I, I'm just curious if you ever feel like the research takes the soul out of it, or you feel that actually you're able to be drawn deeper in with the tools that the academy has to offer? Okay, thank you for this question. So I remember a visit to uh, Princeton University, I was in my second year of my BA, and I was there in a seminar. And one of the professors approached me and he said, you're so sharp and intellectual, how can you be drawn to Kabbalah? <laughs> so in the American vision of Kabbalah, it was like a two opposites. How can I be an intellectual and be drawn to this esoteric and maybe folklore and... Um, Something woo-woo, right? Yeah. It's woo-woo. It's, it's mysticism and Woodstock, you know, yeah. like they, they go together yeah. in that conception. Yeah, so yeah. that I feel that you're also saying the same question. So I am a very rational person. Maybe I neglected this, but I have a very deep passion 
for serious studies, but I use it in a way that I feel doesn't disrupt my emotional and um, maybe world of practice and devotion. So if I would put all my effort in thinking about the meaning of life in philosophical ways, I'll get very depressed. <laughs> I'm honest, because I feel it brings me personally to a place that I don't have answers for. So this is the halal panui, the void, that when we think more and more about what can we really know, we become aware that we don't know much. This void could get us to very extreme results. And when I was young, I did think about these extreme results. Now I have a family and kids. I don't think that way. But I did feel I'm getting to a very extreme despair from thinking of these deep questions of meaning of life and what can I really know. One of my teachers told me, you know, Lior, it's not all about knowing Life has other meanings to it. I couldn't understand mm -hmm. it then. That was a teacher in high school? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I find that I want to live with my intellectual powers and search, but I want to focus on areas I can understand. And that's um, what I find in Kabbalah. So about your question about academia and Kabbalah, yes, in some stages I felt the spiritual quest I was looking for was not answered by my studies. And that's when I met you in the library a few years, six years ago. I was in my beginning of my PhD and I established this group of Maminot and Chokrot, researchers, scholars, and believers, women that are carrying on research and philosophy and other studies. And we tried to mediate this quest for a spiritual and um, profound belief with our intellectual and academic pursuit. I think it was um, what I needed then. Today, I'm not as concerned about this split. Um, I feel it's a process of myself being a serious scholar that can look objectively at my materials and present them in an academic way. And me as a person looking for meaning in the materials I'm studying. It's still a process and development. And even when I teach in, in academia and in Barilan, I think I'm trying to find the way. And this year, I feel more and more I'm finding more connections. Um, the more I feel secure and certain about my academic pursuits, I can be more free to find also personal meaning. And yeah, I think that's a great point. I also, I definitely experienced that in my own life, in my own teaching as well. When I took part in that group all those years ago, uh, well, first of all, I was just utterly floored by you. So I was like, she has to be my friend. <laughs> and then a, a long, windy path took me to living two streets over from you. But I definitely think that when you're people like us who choose to take that is complex and instead of run away from it, like dive head deep into it and then like make their professional life dependent on it. So it's a bit of a messy, it's a messy thing. But I agree with you that I think that both of us in each of our fields have come to a place many years later, it's been many, many years, you know, we've come to a place that, that we are okay to live with the questions that we don't have answers to. And we're, we feel confident enough in both our perhaps professional space and our personal faith space to explore, explore questions in every direction. And I agree with you that when you teach, 
you become hyper aware of where you stand in regards to those questions um, because you have to figure out how to express yourself in that setting if that's suitable for the setting sometimes it involves censoring oneself or, or, or all different aspects and I think that I agree with you that what's beautiful about this journey is that if you have enough grit to keep going on it, that eventually you can get to really lovely spaces in which you can live with the things that drew you to them in the first place and also live relatively in harmony with the spaces that, with that void, with the space that you don't have answers to and, and know that that too is okay and that that's a space for faith. Like that, that's a space for where we have our moments of emuna, where we know that you know, we have an internal knowing as opposed to a, a cognitive knowing, and that that's a knowing that isn't less certain, and it's certainly not less powerful than the cognitive knowing. Okay, so with that introduction, Lior, why don't you take us through some of the uh, ideas that you've brought for us on the Parashah? So I want to present for you a text that you probably won't meet in any other setting because actually it was never published as a book. What I have here is a book written in the 13th century by a Kabbalist that used very vivid imagery and sometimes even graphic for his approach to the divine. And his name is Rabbi Yosef Abamishushan. You probably don't know his name because he was not famous uh, through his name throughout the centuries, although his ideas were very influential in Kabbalah. So this book is called Sefer Tashak. Uh, what does it mean, Sefer Tashak? We don't really know, but one of the reasons or one of the explanations for the word Tashak is Toma, Shira Shirim, and Yechezkel. So because we're speaking about Parashat Toma, when Yosefa invited me to speak about Parashat Truma, I thought, wow, we should speak about this book that three letters signify his commentary for Truma. This Kabbalist is also very special for me because he was the center of my PhD research, and I have prepared a critical edition for a different book of his that wasn't published ever, but always copied and transcribed in manuscript, Sefer Tamea Mitzvot. Book of Rationals of the Commandments. So this book, I told you, was not never published, so how can I read from it? It was actually transcribed as a critical edition. When I say a critical edition, I mean an academic edition. Transcription from manuscripts by a man called Jeremy Zwelling. He wrote his dissertation in 1975 in Brandeis University. I'm using his edition that is available only through his PhD. In this work, what's very, very special about it, that in the middle of the book, Rabbi Yosef of Bamishushan starts writing in Aramaic, very similar to Zohar Aramaic. So researchers and scholars were very puzzled to understand what is the relationship between this Kabbalist writing in the 13th century in Spain and the Zohar, because we know that the Zohar was composed mostly in the 13th century Spain at this time. And it's a big puzzle. Who was active and contributing to these treatises that eventually become the book of the Zohar that was printed in 16th century? 
So this Kabbalist, Rabbi Yosef Obama Shushan, that you never heard about? May have been a contributing editor <laughs> yeah. to the Zohar, is yeah. what you're saying. Has <laughs> a special connection to the Zohar. Okay. Yeah. So um, Rabbi Yosef Obama Shushan is part of a few Kabbalists active in Spain at this period. We don't know that they had social relationships between them. We don't know much about their biography. Um, another person you might have heard about is Rabbi Moshe de Leon, Moses de Leon, that was probably the main contributor for most of the parts of the Zohar, and Rabbi Yosef Jikatina. What's special about this book, and introduces the Parashat Truma, is that he combines the ideas of theosophic wisdom. What's the- theosophy? Theosophy is approaching the divine realm through Sfirot. The ten Sfirot. Kabbalists in this period, it was about a century that they started approaching God not as one monolithic being, but as God is manifesting itself through ten Sfirot. And what's the most crucial uh, characteristic of these ten Sfirot is that they have a female and male aspects of them. So this was a major shift in Jewish ways of understanding the divine realm, not only as a male god, Avinu Malkenu, our father, our king, but a couple. And this whole book, and actually major parts of the Zohar and other Kabbalistic works in this time, were centered at how to bring peace and union between the male and the female parts. And this is also reflected in his commentary for Parashat Truma. And if you open the Parashat Truma of the Zohar, also you'll see that the word Truma signifies the Shechina. Shechina is the female attribute of the divine world. She's the closest to human beings, and she's always in a danger of being separated from the higher Sfirot above her, from her groom. So she's the bride, and there's a groom. When you sing in Kabbalah Shabbat, you're really unifying the male and the female. Yeah. Mm. This piyut, was written by a Kabbalist, Rabbi Shlomo Kabetz, in Tzfat, that actually was also influenced by Rabbi Yosef Abba We have a manuscript that was copied for him, for Rabbi Shlomo Kabetz. Actually, this unifying is the main idea, the theosophic idea that is repeated again and again throughout his commentary. That's why he combines Truma and Shira Shirim. Truma is the parasha that tells us we need to build a tabernacle and take the money from the people and use their contributions to build a tabernacle. And this tabernacle understood in a few ways. One of the ideas of the Kabbalah is that every verse has a few levels of interpretation. There is Pshat, Remez, Drash, Vesod, Pardes. Pardes is the four means of interpreting a biblical text. So they do believe that there is a Pshat, there is a literal plain, meaning. Plain sense, yeah. Bnei Israel had to take their money and build a tabernacle. But this is not enough for them because they want to find meaning in the verses that will be relevant for people in the diaspora when there is no tabernacle. So the Torah needs to be eternal with eternal meaning. 
the other means of commentary give these more relevant contemporary meanings for the Kabbalists. So drash is the sages' ways of approaching a verse, the whole stories and other things that we learn uh, from the sages, the rabbinical text. And then remez, and sod remez is the allegorical reading of a text that was very common in Jewish philosophy. Maimonides uses it. And the Kabbalists don't erase Maimonides when they write their commentaries. So they take this allegorical meaning and they use it, but then they put another level of understanding, which means... And that's, that's the Sod. That's the Sod, mm-hmm. yeah. The Sod is understanding how the verses don't really speak about our material world, but speak about the divine world, the theosophical realm of the Sfirot. And in this opening, in his book for Parashat Truma, Tashak, he combines and he brings first the allegorical reading and then the theosophical reading. First the Remesh and then the Sod. So for a person that is not a Kabbalist, that you might find more interest in the first uh, interpretation I will present, which is the allegorical reading. In this allegorical reading, he says, and then he says, And then he says, Okay, so he says that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, it signifies the human body and his form. Okay, so the tabernacle is a sign is an allegory for the person's body. And the Shechina, which is the heart and soul of the tabernacle, is actually each one's soul. So each one of us is a tabernacle. My body is my temple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it comes from here, everyone. Okay. Yeah. So actually, we have a book written by a professor, Ron Margolin, that talks about Mikdash Adam, human temple. And he shows how this idea from the very early uh, sources till the Hasidut, Hasidism was developed. And really the idea of the temple was internalized, which means that it's not only a building and in a geographical point and setting, but it's every person's body. And this was a means, like I said, to give meaning for rituals and ideas that are not relevant when we don't have a temple. So the biblical text is still relevant for each one of us. Mm -hmm. So this idea means that we need to connect and do something because the verse says, we need to act and perform deeds that will make the Shekhinah and our personal shechina are so present in our body. What does this mean that we need? And he says here, you need to study Torah and you need to perform and practice the commandments. The Torah and the commandments are tools to make present our soul in our body and connect between them. So this is the allegorical reading of the verse. And in the Kabbalistic reading of the verse, the truma is the Shekhinah, like he said here, but really what we're doing is we're making present the Shekhinah in the temple. 
in the tabernacle and we're unifying between the bride and the groom, between the Shekhinah and the Kadosh Baruch Hu. So this may be puzzling for many people that we call in Kabbalah, the Kadosh Baruch Hu, it's not just God, all the Sfirot, but it's the male Sfirah that corresponds to the groom, to the male. Mm. And we need to unify between the male and the female, between Kadosh Baruch Hu and the Shekhinah. But yes. you said before that the Shekhinah is the lower, is a lower version. Yeah. So is the Shekhinah lower than the Kadosh yeah. Baruch Hu? Yeah. They're not, they're not, it's not a marriage of equals? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that's a big question you're touching. <laughs> I can't open, <laughs> but the gender and sexual imagery, talking about the divine, developed a very controversial um, scholarship in Kabbalah, and gender and Kabbalah is a very major theme. It's also and probably, saying this from a non-scholarly perspective, it's probably also what contributes to its popularity today, meaning not only because of the, as you said, the personification of all different Jewish rituals, but because the female element is much more present. And so it also gives a little bit more of an in for a lot of modern learners looking to see themselves in the yeah. text. So if you're interested in the modern adaptations of the Shekhinah amongst feminists, I wrote an article about, it's called Shekhinah Revival, mm -hmm. and how contemporary feminist women take the idea of Shekhinah, reclaim it, mm -hmm. and give it a more feminist twist. So on the one hand, they're taking the ideas and symbols and imagery and language from the Kabbalists, but they are changing some of their meanings mm -hmm. to adapt it to a modern and feminist sensitivity. Okay, but if we, and if we go back to the, the commentary on, on the parasha, what creates the connection between the Shekhinah and HaKadosh Baruch Hu? It's reading the verse, it's envisioning it, like what actually brings about that connection? So the building of the temple, ah, okay. the actions, that's why he has a whole book rationalizing the commandments, uh -huh. our actions, each and every action does different kind of unification between the Shekhinah and the Kadosh Baruch Hu. There are also other kinds of theurgical, we call it theurgy, when we've influenced God, which is an idea bizarre for people outside of Kabbalah, but the commandments are first and foremost, not to repair society or human soul, but to influence the divine realm. And each and every commandment does a different influence on this divine realm. And the major influence is unifying Kuchabrichu and Shechina. And might some of you have heard of the saying, Leshem Yichud Kuchabrichu Shechinte? This is a Kabbalistic way to remind you before you do any action, light up candles for Shabbat, Hanukkah, eat your meals, anything you do, you're remembering that this action is for one purpose, unifying the Kadosh Baruch Hu and the Shekhinah. You know, it's really interesting because obviously when someone functions with this worldview, um, I mean, it really changes the way you think about the world. I have a friend, we have these conversations, she is a, I won't say to what, but she is, belongs to a Hasidic group. Uh, and she functions with these, with these theologies in her regular, in her regular life, in her, and she's a, I mean, we're very, very good friends. And I would say to her, you know, it's a lot of pressure, you know? I mean, it's like everything you do, like you have the ability to impact 
the divine realms of the world and she said why is it pressure it's just it's a gift that i have it's a it's a it's a koach. it's a power that we that we as humans have and it's something that should be empowering and it shouldn't be something that that intimidates us. And I guess it's also a matter of what you grew up with, right? Like I think it's both of them. When you empower a person and you say that one of his actions or her actions, usually they speak about the males, but mm-hmm. let's say Israel's Jewish people's actions influence the divine world. It empowers them, but it also intimidates them to sin and to transgress. Because mm-hmm. if you fail to... Um, to live fill, up to that standard. Yeah, and to fill your responsibility, not only for your neighbor, but for God himself. Of course, it fills you with awe and fear. So I think it's both parts, that the power and responsibility, it also comes with fear of failure. And they do both of these sides. And actually, I was very interested in the negative side of it in my previous studies and even now fear and and awe is a very central emotion i'm very intrigued in exploring because a lot of the scholarship has emphasized and focused on the empowerment of rituals by these ideas but it's what you say is very very true i believe they did the opposite as well okay i think this text and the Kabbalistic approach to the verse really gives us liberty and enthusiasm to find more and more meanings in the biblical verse and seeing that the verse doesn't have only one way of reading it, but it has several ways of interpreting it and finding new and relevant approaches to our Torah, to our life, and to the way we we approach the divine world and ourselves. So that's what I would say I would like to learn from the different levels of interpretation of the text. Lior, thank you for this. (laughs) So as you know, it's a soundbite, and I I know that, you know, there's there's so many different... uh, so many different ways to approach and so many different avenues to discuss Kabbalistic uh, interpretation of the, of, the, of the biblical text. So thank you for this introduction. And uh, we'll see. Maybe in the future we'll be able to have more conversations about it. Thank you, Sefra. Shabbat Shalom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.